Welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Hello, Long Hill Chapel Online. We are so glad that you're with us today. My name is Pastor Michael, and we are kicking off a brand new series here at Long Hill that I'm very excited about called Sinners and Saints, Holy Moments, Holy Messes, and everything in between. And what we're going to be doing this fall is we're going to be looking at some characters in the Bible that are familiar to many of us. Even if you're not like a longtime church person or a Christian person, you know some of these names and you may even know some of the stories. But one of the things we discover is that there's things in those stories that maybe we haven't considered before, and there's lessons for us. We discover as we look at some of these folks, and it's so easy to look at their stories, to look at kind of the place they occupy, whether it's in our faith or even, you know, just in the history as we understand Christianity, and to put them up on the pedestal. But we discover actually that so many of them are deeply flawed people, and they have really complex stories. And we discover in many ways that they're just like you and I. They're just like us. They face some of the same things that you and I face. They encounter some of the same things. They struggle internally with some of the same things. But here's also the good news is that God used them and he can use you and I in just the same way. And so today we're starting off with a story which is a Sunday school story and it's the story of Jacob and Esau. And we discover the family dynamics so often in some of these stories. When you look at them again with adult eyes, they're a real mess. There's a lot going on that you just maybe didn't see when you heard it for the first time as a kid, and that's the dynamics that we're going to explore today. But really what that means, these ancient stories so far separated from our reality, but how they apply in our lives, in our worlds, in our relationships, and in the situations that we find ourselves in. And so today, we're going to read from Genesis, the very first book of the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, in chapter 25 and verses 19 through 34. And the story goes like this. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. You know, some of you, you've had, some, you've had children, or maybe you were a sibling, and you've had like sibling rivalry. This is like a whole different level of that. But what we discover right here is this is actually an inversion of how things happen in ancient culture. Usually the eldest child or the eldest son, the eldest male heir, was the primary strongest one who had the most attention, the most resources, and everything. And we discover that it's really going to go in the opposite direction of what usually happens. And so the story goes on. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, and so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. 
The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Have you had like a parent who had like a favorite child and it wasn't you or it was one of your siblings? That's really what's going on here. And it's this really interesting, complex, probably unhealthy dynamic. And so the story continues. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. This is why he was also called Edom, which in the original language literally means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. We'll come back to that in a minute. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. And what a birthright really was in ancient culture was it was this honor that was bestowed on the firstborn. It was a double portion of the inheritance. It was a special set of privileges. It was something that was unique in position. It was given because of who that person was. And you know, ever since I was a kid and I grew up in church, uh, this story uh, has always made me wonder because you read it and it's kind of just a weird story. You read it and you're like, duh, like why would you do that? You're a little bit too hungry and we've all been pretty hungry at points, but that seems like an extraordinary place to take things to. But here's what's true about life. When we look around us, we can look around and we can see countless examples of really smart, really successful, really together people who do really short-sighted things. They make a decision in the moment, which with the benefit of time and the benefit of hindsight proves to have been the exact wrong decision. And they blow up parts of their lives in the process. And you know, it's easy to look around and apply this kind of thinking to those big wrong decisions, that person you never should have gotten with, that thing you never should have purchased, that thing you never should have posted on the internet, that thing you never should have gone and done, that place that you went, that season of your life, that substance you got yourself addicted to. The, the list goes on and on and on. But we also have to look at ourselves in the midst of this and look at the possibility that there are small ways and sometimes there are big ways that we do exactly the same things. And when we look at all of these stories of smart, successful, otherwise people who have it together doing all of these kind of things, we are led to a conclusion about ourselves, which is not a conclusion that most of us like to hear. And it's this, we are much less rational than we would like to believe. We're much less rational than we'd like to believe. As so many of us, we look at our lives and we think, you know, we, we understand how the world works. We understand even how we work, how we interact with that. But what we discover when we look at our lives with the long view is that actually we're a lot less rational than we'd like to believe. I remember uh, when I was a young adult, 
And uh, I'm now a middle-aged adult, but I was a young adult, and I really began to have to face this reality because I was always a pretty smart kid. I did really well in school. I won awards and academic achievements and things like that. But I discovered patterns in my life that began to tell me something about myself, that many of the decisions that I thought I had made based on the evidence, based on the data, based on what was right, were actually things that I had done emotionally. And here's what we discover about humanity is fundamentally, all of us are emotional beings at some level, whether it's on the surface, and you know some folks who have it really on the surface, or people who have it way down underneath. We're actually emotional beings. And we put a veneer of rationality on top of that to sell ourselves on the decisions that we make. And we do this all the time. We do this all the time. So many of the things that you have purchased, that you've told yourself the rational reason that you did it, there's actually an emotional reason underneath the surface. And so that's not a big deal in some areas of life, but it can become a problem. And here's what happens that we discover because we're not as rational as we would like to believe that we are. We are driven by a set of desires, a set of urges, and even a set of fears that have the ability to short-circuit God's best plans for our lives in favor of our immediate relief. So there's these things that will always beckon to you, and they'll beckon to me, and they speak to things that are within us that seem at times urgent and important, just like we see with Esau. But what they have the ability to do when we choose to go down those paths instead is they have the ability to short-circuit what God's best is for our lives. And most of the time, God's best is not found in the impulsive decision. It's found in trust. It's found in faith. It's found in waiting it out. There's a verse in the Old Testament. It's in one of the books of the prophets, and it's written by an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. And he was looking at the situation that was going on with these smart, powerful, influential kings that were in his life. And he wrote this single verse that has become, in some ways, my life verse. Like, I would love to have bumper stickers made with this verse, or like a bookmark with like some kittens on it and this verse. It is such an important verse because it doesn't sound positive and optimistic. And when you hear it, you're going to be like, this is a huge downer. Why did I come to online church today? But it's so important for us to understand about ourselves. And so in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, the prophet wrote this. He said, the heart, the human heart, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Aren't you glad you came to church today? And so it's this verse that says, we sell ourselves on things. We have an agenda, our emotions, our hearts. In ancient culture, the heart was like the center of your being or your personality. It's saying it is duplicitous. It does not always tell you the truth, and it's a terminal condition meaning you can't outsmart it, you can't go to enough Bible studies to cure it. It is something that is part of your condition as a human being, and it will follow you all your life. And even then, when you look at it, it's hard to understand why you do what you do, why you make the decisions that you make. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament talks about this too. He says, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do and the things I know I should be doing, I don't do them. 
And so we discovered that this is just part of living as human beings on planet Earth. That one day when we see Jesus face to face, we will be perfected. We'll have new bodies. We will not struggle with this anymore. But as long as we're here, even if we know a lot of Bible, even if we go to church all the time, that our temptation and our natural bent is to go in this direction, to make decisions that seem like the right thing in the moment, but with the view of perspective turn out to be the wrong thing. And so we find ourselves at that point in this crazy story about Jacob and Esau. Let's go back and look at that. Remind ourselves of what a birthright is. A birthright in ancient culture was a special position that was given to you simply because of who you were. It was something that wasn't because of what you did, how much you achieved. It was because you were the firstborn. You got a double inheritance. You had a special role, a special place in life because of who you were. Now, for so many of us in our lives, most of what we define ourselves by is not who we are, but by what we do. And you know that's true, and I don't even have to go into all the examples of it. But we discover that there are a few unique roles that every person has because of who they are, that nobody else can do. Because here's what's true about so much of the rest of your life. Someone else will one day do your job. They'll sit at your desk. They'll have your title. They'll work in your company. You will be a memory that a few people remember, but someone else will one day have your job. Someone else will one day live at your address. You live in your home, and maybe you've worked hard to make it what it is, and it's a beautiful place that you call home, but there's a day coming where you will no longer be there, and someone else will live there. Someone else one day will have to deal with all your stuff. You know, you've worked hard to buy, to accumulate, to achieve, uh, to build up, to do whatever it is. There's a day where somebody else will have to figure out what to do with all of your stuff. You know, you've poured yourself into a career. Maybe you've even started a business. But someday, there's someone else who will take that over. They'll sit at your desk. They'll do the things that you did. And as I said, you will be a memory that is in the past. And what I've just talked about, especially in the area that we find ourselves living here in central New Jersey, describes much of what we build our lives around. And we discover that they're all things that in the culture, in the world that we're in, we're told are important, that they're critical, that we have to give ourselves to and for. But someday, someone else will do all of those things. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, Michael, you know, that's great. It's great. You're the pastor. You know, I work hard at this and I know that you do and it's important and it's even good. But here's what I know is that at some point we hear that long enough that our hearts begin to sell ourselves on the same thing. We begin to take it in as it's true. And even though we can rationalize it, we can say, you know, I'm building a better life. I'm doing this for my kids. At some point, there's an emotional need that it's filling. And we have sold ourselves just like Jeremiah said that we do. But here's the other side of the coin. Is that there are a set, and it's not a long list, of unique roles that you have that nobody else and do. What are yours? Here's what mine are. 
I am Grace Hottie's first husband. Now, I hope she doesn't ever have to have another one, but if something were to happen to me, I am her first. I'm the, I'm the husband of her youth. We walked down the aisle as a pair of young adults and we were married, so I'm Grace's first husband. I'm Christopher and Jonathan's only father. I'm Christopher and Jonathan's only father. You know, if something were to happen or I were to abdicate my responsibilities, there's some other people who could come in and they could try to fill in the gaps and they could try to fill in the holes and they could try to make do, but I am the only person who can fill that role. And if I step up to that role, I will save my children years of heartache and therapy and all sorts of brokenness. I'm the only one who can say, I love you to my kids from that standpoint of being their dad. I'm my brother's only brother. I'm my dad's only younger son. Here's what's true. Someday someone else will pastor this church. Someday someone else will deal with all of the business affairs that I've been involved in. Someday someone else will live at my address. Someday someone else will have to sort through all of the things I've accumulated. But there's only a few things that are unique to me. And so here's the first big takeaway that we discover about this story, this Old Testament story that so many of us know about Jacob, Esau, and the birthright. Don't trade what's unique to you for something someone else will do. Don't trade what's unique to you for something somebody else will do. Don't trade the unique roles of your life, the places where you have been positioned, where you're the only one for something that some, some, somebody else someday is going to come along and they're going to do it. And you know, you hear a statement like that and you're like, great, I agree. Nobody disagrees with this statement, but we find it so easy to fall into the trap of selling ourselves and selling away our birthright. And so why do we struggle to do that? Remember what Jeremiah said. When it comes down to the moment, we don't look at things rationally. We don't look at them for the truth of what they actually are. We feel some sort of pressure, and it pushes us in another direction. And we see that in the story of Jacob and Esau. Look at what he did. He is hungry. He has an appetite that needs to be satisfied, and it drives him to act in an irrational way. He literally says in the passage, I am about to die. Is it likely that he was about to die? No, it's not. But you and I know times where we have felt appetites and maybe it's been hunger or maybe it's been something else where it feels so strong that it feels like we're literally about to die. And that appetite has a root in something. It has this root in this word scarcity. It's this idea that if I don't get it, it's not gonna be there anymore and I need to get it now. There's not enough and I need to grab it or I'll be without. And if I don't have enough and I need more or I'll die. And it's so easy for those irrational responses to let our birthright slip through our fingers. The internal and the external pressures of your life will beckon you strongly to abandon your birthright to satisfy temporary urges in 
the moment. The pressures that you feel, the appetites that rise up within you, they will beckon to you and it will seem like a good thing. And you may even feel like, if I don't do this, if I don't go here, I am about to die. Maybe not literally, but in some small way or even a big way. This is why people make decisions that destroy their marriages. This is why people make decisions that blow up their finances. This is why people burn the bridges of their relationships because there's something in the moment and it's not rational. It doesn't make sense, but there's these appetites or there's these needs or there's a sense of scarcity that gets worked up in us so much that it seems like a viable option and it seems like a good thing for us to do. Scarcity just simply means this. It means that you approach life from a deficit mindset. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. I need to keep up. I need to get it before someone else does. There's not enough love. There's not enough sex. I don't have, I'm not getting, and I deserve. And what happens is our culture, the world around us, does not help us when it comes to these things. It is expertly good at applying the pressure in all of those places so that we feel those things stronger than ever. Every single advertisement you and I watch that we see in print or that we watch on TV, it is specifically designed to remind you about the life that you need or the life that you don't have. And I'm not dissing ad writers, but it's literally the reason. Do you think all those people who buy SUVs go scale the mountain with them and they, they, they go do extreme sports? Statistics say very few people do that. But there's this idea that if I buy this, I'll have a life of adventure. If I buy this, I'll have a life of significance or meaning. And it's not just true in those areas. It's true in so many other areas as well. And some of you, you look around your neighborhoods and you know the people who have the nicer house and the nicer stuff, and it applies pressure to you. And you know that it shouldn't. You look around your life, you're like, I have good things. I live in a good place. I have so much to be thankful for, but there's still this gnawing pressure that we have to keep at bay because the world around us constantly does this to us. But it goes even deeper than that. We ourselves do this to ourselves. We do this to us. We look at the situations, the relationships, the circumstances. We look at a year like the past year and a half where, where so much has happened and it's more confusing and exhausting than ever. And we say things, you know, I don't have enough patience to keep doing this. I need to say something. I need to do something. I don't have enough courage. I can't face this any longer. And in those moments, we are at tremendous risk for abandoning our birthright, the things that we have uniquely been called to, to give in to the pressures of the moment. And remember what this is with Esau in the story. The issue here is not Esau's hunger. He's hungry. The issue is his mindset about it, the thing that drives his response. And you and I, so often, we have a mindset too. We have this tape that's playing in our minds that tells us we need to do something or we deserve something or there's something we don't have or there's something that we need to get or there's something that we need to say or there's a change we need to make or we need to throw in the towel or any number of other things. And it's a mindset that drives us in a direction. And whenever we start to go in that direction, we begin to make decisions around it. 
And here's what happens in the passage that's so interesting to me. Because a birthright would be something that was given. It would be something that was valued. It would be something that was recognized as a gift, as an important thing. It's literally a double portion of the inheritance. We discover in the last verse of the passage that Esau despised his birthright. Esau despised his birthright. Here's this curious thing that happens if we get ourselves consumed with that scarcity mindset that we need to get, that we need to achieve, that we need to have, that we deserve that over there and we don't have it yet. When we begin to allow that to drive us in a direction, we actually will, become, we will begin to despise the first things in our lives. We will treat them and we will see them as obstacles when we begin to go in that direction. You'll begin to view those unique things that have been given just to you and no one else as an obstacle to the things that you would rather be doing. And so that's the direction that this takes us. So what do we do about this? What do we do about this depressing reality? Let's name some things that are true about it. First thing is this, your life, especially if you live here, your life will always present you with more opportunity than you have capacity. Your life will always present you with more possibilities that you could go after than you have the ability to. That is true of your time. That is true of your energy. That is true of your resources. It's true of your money. It's true of who and what you love and what you give your life to. It is true at every moment. So you always have to make choices within that. And when you make those choices, you really have to be realistic. You know, you have to work, we have to provide, we have to achieve, we have to give ourselves to certain things. They're even good things. I don't want to diminish that for a second. But everything outside of those first unique roles in your life, and I hope you've named them for yourself right now, they are secondary things. Someone else will come along someday and will do all of those things. You have to be realistic. Living up to your birthright will cost you. Living up to your birthright will cost you. It will cost you. It will require you to make decisions differently than the people around you. It will require you to spend your time and your resources and your energy and your life and your love and your heart in a different way than naturally you might want to do. And there's a cost to it. You give up something in the immediate to receive something bigger in the long term. You know, and here's what's true. You will disappoint people if you live up to your birthright. You will say no to people and things that will disappoint them. There is no way to get out of this without disappointing somebody. So you'll disappoint people in your life. And I'm just encouraging you as you begin to live into this reality, make sure that you're disappointing the right people. Make sure that, that with the decisions that you're making, you're disappointing the right people. You're disappointing the people who are in those secondary places in your life because you will always disappoint someone. But guess what? Here's the catch. You're doing it right now. You're disappointing someone right now. The people who love you will put up with this, at least for a while, because they love you. 
Your kids will put up with this for a while because they love you. But at some point, you'll discover that there's nothing left. You know, I had a friend who was a musician and uh, he told me the story years ago. I was a relatively young married man and he just told me something. He's 10 years older than I am and it was something that always has stuck with me. He said, you know, when I was young, I'd look around and I would see these guys who seemed like they had like the perfect marriage and the perfect family and they lived in the perfect place and they worked really hard and they were gone all the time and somehow they balanced it all together and I always looked around and said, how in the world do they do that and how can I figure out how to do it like them? And he said, fast forward 20 years, nearly every one of them is divorced because the bills come due later. They're not due at the moment. You know, your relationships are like a piggy bank. You're always either putting change into it or you're taking change out of it. And at some point, you run out of change. And that's true. So make sure that you are disappointing the right people in your life. Your boss will not be at your bedside when you pass from this earth into eternity. All the stuff that you've accumulated, the awards, the accolades, the bank account, any of that stuff will not be there in those moments and you cannot take it with you. But guess what? Those first things and those first people will and those are the things and the people that matter the most. You know, there was a book uh, written by an Australian nurse. Her name was Bronnie Ware. And it's a really happy book title. It's the top five regrets of the dying. And you know what she discovered? What she was was a hospice nurse, and so she was with a lot of people at the ends of their lives. And, and so she saw kind of what they reflected back on in those last days and those last hours of their lives. The top number one regret of everybody that she encountered was this, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. And I know what you're saying. We live here. We live in New Jersey. This is the place that we all come to work. But we discover at the end of our lives that maybe we wish we had spent them just a little bit differently. So you need to choose the right things. You need to have a plan. And then you need to put it into practice so it becomes natural. What are the things that are unique to you? You get one shot at most of these. You get to go to school once. Your husband or your wife is young once. You're young once. Your aging parents are alive once. Your kids are little once. I have little kids right now, and I know how it is. It's absolute chaos, but there's a day that will be coming where I'll wish that there was that absolute chaos going on in my life, and it's the thing that gives me perspective and clarity. You get to be grandparents once. So often, it's not the big earth-shattering things. It's the accumulation of the little things. You know, it happens sometimes, especially in our moments of frustration as we speak, and we speak words that we wish we could take back. We burn up relational credibility. You only get to have your relationships once. Every time you and I, we respond poorly or out of exhaustion or feeling out of control or we're trying to make a statement, we lose the respect of people around us and we only get to have that respect once. So what do we do? What do we do as we close our time together? There's a verse that's also in the Old Testament. It was one of the psalmists who wrote it in Psalm 90 and verse 12. And he said this, he said, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number 
our days. You know, I don't know if you've ever done this. You've gone into your bank account. Back in the old days, we used to balance our checkbooks. But now you go back and you kind of balance your books and you look at where you've spent your resources. And sometimes when you do that, there's some surprises that emerge. You look at it and you're like, we spent how much money eating out? And it's in those moments that you're confronted with that reality and you make adjustments. Numbering your days is like doing that. It's taking a view of your life. It's looking at how your time and your resources and your heart and your energy, where those places are actually going and asking the question, are they going to the right things and towards the right people and into the right places? And so I'm asking you to number your days because you only have so many of them. And the roles that you've been given that are unique to you are things that nobody else can do. What if you've blown this? What if you just hear this, you know, you're like, stop talking, I get it. Start now. Today is the best day to start on this journey. Start now with where you can, what you can, with the pieces you can. Begin to make some changes. And some of you along the way, you need to own some things that you've been avoiding. And make sure that the first things in your life, the things that are unique to you that nobody else can do, your birthright is not something that you're selling away for a bowl of soup. Don't trade what's unique to you for something somebody else one day will do. God, we thank you for the perspective of your word and these old stories that uh, seem like they're just stories but confront us with a powerful reality and a powerful truth about how we can live our lives. For some of us, we hear this and you, your spirit has already convicted us and shown us the places that we need to make adjustments. And for some of us, we need to make some big changes. For some of us, it's some tweaks. But I pray that your spirit would not let us rest. You give us the clarity and the courage to do those things, to have absolute understanding of what our unique roles, our birthright is as individuals, as parents, as siblings, as people who are part of a community and people who are part of a church, as husbands and wives, as brothers and sisters. And then we would allow our lives to flow out of that. We thank you that you have given us a way to live differently, not like all the people around us, but to live in a different way that brings life and not death and that honors you and brings power and vitality into the world and into our relationships. We ask by your spirit you would help us do that. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, which is always active and always speaking. Help us now live it out, we pray. 